from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 14 this morning, or actually go finish John chapter 14. And as you turn there, this morning, obviously Greg helping me out a little bit. Uh, my voice is not where I would like for it to be. And so while we were singing, I did not sing. Go ahead, mate, go ahead. Get it, get it out of your system. Thank you, thank you. It's done. Yeah. However, one of the things, and actually this ties into the message this morning. This was not my, my introduction, but it ties in. Uh, I, I, I miss it. I, I like Because He Lives. I, I enjoy that, especially when you get to the chorus, you can you know, really belt it out if you're able to sing. Um, but as... Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Thank you. Let, let's move on from that now. Yeah, we're, okay, we're moving on. But I, 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 I like singing. I, I enjoy it. I like singing hymns. I, I, I enjoy it very much. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons that I enjoy it is because it, singing is a great gift. Uh, we as believers, we get to sing. There's a lot of uh, religions that there, there is no song, there is no music. We, we, we get to sing, we get to lift our voices to God in song. And I don't know if you have thought about that, but think about it this way as it ties into John 14. That really is a demonstration of our love for God, that we lift our voices up to sing to Him. I know that you, you've, you, you know this, but I don't know how much you think about this. The whole Psalter is song, right? We, we read it, but that's what they sing to God. That was their psalm book. That was their hymn book. We are a singing people. And it is a mark of devotion that we have for God when we lift our voices up to Him and sing. And I bring that up this morning because when we come to John 14, the second part, beginning in verse 15 and the rest of the chapter, one of the things that we're immediately drawn to is this is the first time that Jesus makes mention of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14 through chapter 17, Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit five different times, twice in chapter 14. However, these verses are really more about demonstration of love. Now, the Holy Spirit plays into that, absolutely. But the word love appears in these verses nine different times. And as it is mentioned it becomes clear very quickly that love is an action to be demonstrated. And in these verses, it, it breaks out into two distinct, uh, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think. There is a call to love from believers, and then we see Jesus' love in action as well. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. The demonstrations of love found in John 14, and we'll begin reading in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. And remember, Jesus is speaking. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, 
even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will, not, will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then he says, rise, let us go from here. So this morning, as we talk about demonstrations of love, we're going to focus on believers' demonstration of love, and then on how Jesus in these verses demonstrates his love. So firstly, believers demonstrate love for Jesus by obeying his commands. And sorry, I'm going to have to drink more water than normal this morning. Believers demonstrate their love for Jesus by obeying his commands. It makes it very clear. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There it is. I mean, just, just spelled out for us. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about Jesus saying this, we've read about love a lot in John, right? I mean, we go to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. We think about Jesus saying that, that he, he loves his own. He's commanded believers to love one another. But we come to this, and what may be lost on us in the fact that we've read about love so much in the gospel of John is this is the first time that Jesus speaks of the love that his believers, his children, should have for him. This is the first time it's mentioned. And Jesus just looks at him, looks at him and says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And then you heard it again, right? As Jesus says, If you love me, you go obey my words. If you love me, you go obey my word. If you love me, you are going to obey me. And you're going to demonstrate your obedience through keeping my commandments, through keeping my words, through keeping what I have said. And when we think about that, we really need to think about what it's not. I think we got, we got to start there. We haven't talked much about the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't play as a bigger role in the Gospel of John as they do in Matthew. But when we talk about the Pharisees, we can think about what they look like. All their external actions that made them look really good. They wore the right clothing. They said the right prayers. They had the right translation of the Bible, 
right? They made the right sacrifices. They made the right tithes. They, they, they did everything right. Everything outside looked good. They had the 613 rules that they had to obey. That's, that's not what this is. Right? I mean, I, I got to be honest with you as, you know, as the, the engineer part in me, I wish in the back of my Bible there was an appendix that was inspired by God that says do and don't. And through the, the miraculous power of God, it just kind of automatically updates as we progress through society and things change, you know. So on one day they might be 613, and then next year there's 627. It's like, and then we get to 2025 and go, God, I didn't even see this one. So we flip back to the appendix, and, and 10 more have, have joined the list, right? That's, that's really not what it is. It, it's not a sappy emotionalism, right? It, it, you know what that sappy emotionalism looks like, you, you know? We, we, we see it's, it's not that. It's not even really rooted in fear. It's not we'll love him because we're afraid of him. It's also not, okay, I love him, so I'm going to work to to merit some kind of blessing. It's none of that. At the same time, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, "Well, well, Gary, isn't there some stuff that we're supposed to do and not do? And the answer is very clearly, yes, there, there, there is. Okay, well, we've, we've preached on that. It's easy. Jesus makes, makes that clear. There are commandments we are to obey. We obey His ethical and moral commands. However, it, it's much more than that. Because what Jesus is calling us to do is to think of all that we have, right? We go back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. We understand that this is God's Word. Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is is God's Word. And so what we are to do is go and look at His Word and be obedient to His Word. Now again, I know what you think. We go to Romans with all the commands. We go to James, right? If you want to feel bad about being a believer, go read the book of James. It's like getting into the ring with, with you know, well, I don't know who the current boxer is, so Mike Tyson, you know, and just getting beat up. James will beat you up on the do's and the don'ts. But that's not John's point. Even when he writes his epistles, that, that's not his point. He leaves it a little more nebulous than that. It's not clearly defined. Except he tells us to love him as he has loved the Father. How did he love the Father? He loved the Father through complete and total obedience. Not my will be done, but yours. So what Jesus is is calling us to do, and I'm a little leery of using this phrase, but I think it's the correct phrase. We live a life that is holistically devoted to God. All aspects of our life devoted to Him and say, we're going to obey you in everything that we do. And our obedience in doing that is going to be a great man- is a manifestation of our love for you. Now, here's the, and, and I put it in my notes, here's the freeingly restrictive nature of that command. And I know if you're paying attention, those two words don't go together. And I did that on on purpose. 
Because it is freeingly restrictive in that it allows you, you... You know when Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? That's what that means. If we live a life holistically devoted to God and saying, all right, God, I am going to love you, that allows us individually, as long as it is within the bounds of Scripture, you can't step outside the bounds of Scripture, but it allows you within the bounds of Scripture to live a life devoted to God in a way that God is leading you to live a life devoted to God. And I can't look at you and go, well, wow, you must not really love God, because if you love God, you'd do it my way. No. No. That's not what it means. So that, and you go, well, Gary, I want some points. Give, give me something. All right, go read the Ten Commandments. Don't violate those. All right. God says, Jesus says, love me as I love the Father. And you go back again. You look through the Gospel of John. How has he done it? His whole life has been devoted to love for the Father. So that is how we love him. Now, let me give you something to think about. So when we step outside of those bounds, when we step outside the do's and the don'ts, and we do what we shouldn't and we don't what we should, it's not a failure of obedience. It's really much more personal. It's a failure of love. For in that moment... What we are saying is, I love my sin more, I love myself more than I love you. And that in this one area, in this one thing, I'm not going to be holistically devoted to you because I love it more. And if we start thinking about our obedience and our demonstration of our love for God through obedience, and when we don't as a, a failure of love, Instead of a fail, I mean, because really, when you speed, do you think of that as a failure of loving the speed limit? You don't. You just didn't obey the speed limit. But if we can, if we get in the practice of going, all right, when I sin, it's a failure of my love for God. It might pull us out of some sins that we might be happy to engage in otherwise. Because now it's not just external. It becomes internal. Now, this sounds kind of daunting, right? Sounds hard. Well, so we're told, 1 John 5, 3, Jesus, uh, we're told that his commands are not burdensome. Why are his commands not burdensome? Well, because of the second point. And that is Jesus demonstrates his love for us all right, so we're switching from our love to Him to how He demonstrates His love for us by sending the, whole, the Holy Spirit. All right, look at what He says in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 15, excuse me, 16. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. Now, it seems kind of like an odd transition. Love me, keep my commandments. God's going to send another helper. Yet they work together. And they work together because God understands, Jesus understands that holistic devotion of love is going to be difficult. 
And in our own strength, we can't do it. So Jesus says, look, you know I'm leaving. You know I'm departing. I'm going to pray because, of, and notice the intimate relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Again, we're brought back to the Trinity. The Son prays to the Father because the word there is really pray. It says ask, but it means pray. So Jesus is going to pray to the Father, and the Father who loves the Son, because of his great love for the Son, is going to honor the Son's request and send the Spirit to come be with us. He's going to send another helper. And just for a moment, we, we've got to talk about the word that is used here. It's translated helper in the ESV. It's comforter, I think, in the King James. NIV uses advocate. CSB uses counselor. And you go, all right, which one is correct? Now, the Greek word you may have heard is called is paraclete. That, that's the word. And it, there's not really a good one-to-one -one translation. Part of that is the ever-changing nature of language. And part of that is because sometimes when you go from one language to another, there's not a good one-to-one -one word. It just it doesn't exist. It's not like, what is blue in, in, in Spanish? Well, it's azul. What's blue mean in, in English? It means it's blue. What's it mean in Spanish? It means it's blue. And you got a one-to-one -one translation. Here, not so much. The word actually has a judicial implication, right? We, we can think lawyer, but, but, but not, as, not exactly. However, when you think of what a lawyer does, what does a lawyer do? He advocates for the person he is defending. A, a lawyer is there to give you strength, which is what the word comfort originally meant in the 1600s with the King James. The, the lawyer is there to give you counsel, advice. Here's what you need to do. The lawyer is there to, to help you. So Jesus is looking at them and going, you're going to need help. You're going to need an advocate to come and to be with you so that when I leave, I'm not going to leave you alone, but out of the great love that I have for you, I'm going to demonstrate that love by praying to the Father and saying, Father, send the third person of the Trinity to come and be with your children. Jesus is going to demonstrate his love for us that way. Now, did you catch the word right before helper? Did you catch that? He's not going to send a new, he's not going to send something that doesn't exist. Or he says, I'm going to send another helper. If there's another, by necessity, there has to be one already, right? Who is the one? It's Jesus. That wasn't a trick question. Jesus has been fulfilling not the role of the Holy Spirit, but the same functions. He's been with them to help comfort them, to give them counsel, to give them advice, to tell them what to do. And Jesus says, now, when I leave, another, another who is like me is going to come. When you drop down to verse 26, it says, he says, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. Right? He's now, this is the first time he's called the Holy Spirit. Earlier, he called him the Spirit of truth. And truth and holiness really is, it defines the, the Godhead. So in verse 26, we see the connection with verse 15. It is our advocate will teach us, and notice what he says, you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I 
have said to you. Why is it that believers, us today, who never physically saw Jesus, never listened to him with our ears, or walked with him, can understand him and obey his commandments? Why can we do what we're called to do in verse 15? Because the Holy Spirit has come. And his role, and look very, this is, this is important, right? His role is what? Teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So for us today, right? Jesus said he's going to send you another one who is internal. He, he's going to dwell with us. But his role is to remind us of what has already been said. The Holy Spirit's role is not to provide new revelation. I know this is a, this, this is a small, uh, not, it's not a small thing. All right? This is not, the Holy Spirit's job is not to come and reveal new truth to us. The Holy Spirit's role and job is to come and to provide a continuation of what Jesus has already revealed to us. Right? There is no, well, I was just caught up in the Spirit and, and, and the Spirit revealed to me. No, that stopped with John in the, in the book of Revelation. That does not happen today. However, it is the reason why successive, successive generations of believers today can, can follow Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit's role is to remind us of everything that Jesus has already told. And he's doing that, again, not externally. Look back up in verse 17. The Spirit of truth, you, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This morning, as you are sitting here in worship, have you considered the fact that this morning that, that the Holy Spirit is in you this morning? That the eternal God is through the Holy Spirit is actually in you? That's why we can understand what Jesus is saying. And that's an absolute guarantee. You don't need the coming of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is in you. The moment you profess Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is in you. And he is going to lead and guide you, just as it says. He's going to teach you all things that Jesus has already revealed to us. That is his role. Now, we're going to get into some more of that a little bit later when Jesus brings him up again. But it's a great demonstration of his love when he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another helper. He's going to do the exact same job that I have done with you. And honestly... I think it's a greater benefit for us today than the disciples then. Because at least they had memories of sitting with Jesus, sitting underneath, at his feet and listening to his teaching. We don't have those memories. We have something greater. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that will bring to mind and remind us and teach us everything that Jesus has already said. Well, thirdly, Jesus demonstrates his love for us through the resurrection. He demonstrates his love to us through the resurrection. And it's very clear in verse 18. 
where Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world will, will see me no more, but you will see me because I, because I live. You also live. And then he says, in that day, you will know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. When Jesus is talking about that, he is, he is not talking about his second coming. All right? this, this is not pointing forward to what happens in the book of Revelation. This is pointing forward to just a few short days after the crucifixion. Right? They're, they're hours away from the trial, hours away from the crucifixion, hours away from the burial, hours away from the resurrection. This is not what it means. I'm so glad Sue picked because he lives. Because it's really appropriate. Because he lives, we live. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey to them, convey to us this morning. Because at the cross, they're going to be devastated. They're going to scatter. They're going to flee. They're going to feel like they have been abandoned. And Jesus looks down and says, no, do not feel that way. Because I will come to you again. When you look at Jesus, his appearances after the resurrection, there's something very important about all his appearances. It is only two disciples. Not just the 11, but everyone who at that time was counted a disciple. Jesus does not appear to any unbelievers at his resurrection. He doesn't appear to Caiaphas. He doesn't appear to Ananias. He doesn't appear to Pilate. He doesn't appear to the centurions. I mean, wouldn't that be a great thing? I mean, I'm sorry. I just, I had one of those just images. You know, the, the guards at the tomb, right? They, they flee. Wouldn't it just be kind of funny? You know, about five days later, Jesus finds the guards and he's like, hey guys. You know, sorry. I, uh, sometimes I should just let thoughts that I have go. Uh, but he doesn't. He doesn't appear. The only people he appears to is believers, right? Mary at the tomb. He appears to the disciples behind the locked doors. Appears to the disciples again behind the locked doors, this, this, this time with, with Thomas' presence. He appears with them at the lake. Luke tells us he appears to 500 of his believers. So he says to them, you're going to see me again. And here is his love demonstrated. He says very clearly, look again at the end of verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. Because he lives, I know I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. He lives. And all of that is true. made even more beautiful because we live. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that we will have life. And he says, because I live, you will have life as well. You don't need to be afraid of death. You don't need to be fearful because death has not defeated me. I've defeated it. I live. And you too can defeat death as well. Because I live, you will live too. Because he lives, we know that the graveyard on both sides of Red Bank is not the end of the story. That we will live. 
That's an amazing promise. And look at what he attaches it to. Remember last week I said there's going to be an amazing claim that he makes in verse 20? Well, let's look at that real quick. In that day, so the day of the resurrection, he always says, you will know that I am in the Father, right? Last week he says, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Oh, that's pretty cool. Look what he says. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father. Now watch this. And you in me, and I in you. So notice the intimacy that we have with Jesus and with the Father as well. It's not some external understanding. It is internal that Jesus is alive. I mean, I, I, I know that we can maybe argue a little bit about, you know, I, I know that Jesus lives. How do you know that he lives? He lives because he's in my heart. We could argue some of that. But to a degree, it is true. Because he says, you're in me. I'm in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're, this morning, you're full of with God. I know, it sounds a little Pentecostal. I'll be Pentecostal when Scripture is, is, is true. I'm sorry, I got a lot of Pentecostal brothers and sisters I love dearly. All right, but, but we are, Jesus is in us. We are in Him. How do we know that we are in the Son and the Son is in us? Because we're keeping His Word. Because he keeps his word, living a whole life, living a life holistically devoted to Jesus proves that you are in him and he is in us. And he says, because of that, look at, look at this. this. This is amazing. Because of that, you will know that the Father loves you. The Father will love you. If anyone loves me, this is verse 23, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And look at it again. And we'll come to him and make our home with him. So now we're not just in the son. We're not just in the spirit. Now the father has come and made his home with us. See previous comment. You're just filled up with God this morning. Isn't that amazing? We go back to the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31, 31. And that they, they will be my people and they will be my God. And I will dwell with them and they will dwell with me. And I know that that points forward to the future of heaven when we are physically in the presence of God, when we're physically in the presence of the Savior. But one of the great promises about the new covenant is we get to experience it now. The Spirit is in us. Jesus is in us. The, the Father has, loves us, and He has come to us. I mean, don't, don't let the direction of that go to, go to waste. Right? It would help if I could find that verse again. Sorry. There it is, verse 23. The Father will love Him and will come to Him. The Father will love him and will come to him. Let me ask you a question. Does that put the prodigal son parable in a whole different perspective? We didn't come to, we're not going to the Father. The Father is coming to us. 
that, that's just one of those Bible verses. I, I, I mean, I can read it and understand it, but I just, it kind of leaves me speechless. And when you think about that for just a minute, and I'm going to just, y'all need to mark this down because Gary is going to ask you to feel. And you know, you know what I say about emotions. You know, I warn you that your emotions can override truth. But just, 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 just for a minute, when you read that verse, my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel like you're significant? That you have purpose? That the Father loves you? That He desires to be with you enough that He will come to you? That we have communion with the Father? It doesn't say He's just going to come and keep going. He says make our home with Him. You have a home. You have a future. You have an inheritance. You know who doesn't have that? The world doesn't have any of that. doesn't have any of the beauty of that promise. But for those of us who by grace through faith have been saved, we can feel and know the demonstration of God's love through the resurrection, the promises that are attached to it, and that the Father will come to us. And it all is because He lives. But then finally, Jesus demonstrates His love for us by giving us peace. By giving us peace. Everything that is about to happen is going to trouble their hearts. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's going to turn their world upside down and shake it like a snow globe. I mean, they don't, they don't know what's going to hit them. And so Jesus looks at them and says, Look, I'm leaving, but I am leaving you with my peace. When we think of peace, we always think of it in negative terms. Not that it's a negative word, but by definition, it means it's the absence of conflict. And, and, and that's, that's a true definition. And the Bible uses it that way, right? Israel was at peace with its neighbors. I mean, it is, it is used in that context. But when the Bible discusses biblical peace as it relates to an individual, it is always in the positive. It is, it is a positive word. Again, it is, it is a word of, of blessing. It, it, is, it is a word that is attached to the Messianic kingdom, that it will be defined as one of peace. It is fulfilled through the New Testament, through Jesus, who is the Messiah. It is, again, a holistic word. You, you know the word shalom in the, the Hebrew. It, it is not just peace. It's not just a greeting. It is, it is a blessing saying, I hope that every aspect of your life is one that is defined by peace. Specifically, the peace that we can have with God. And here Jesus says, I'm going to give you my peace. It's not, no one's else. He's going to give us his peace. He gives it to us personally. And so it is his peace that calms us in times of trouble. It is his peace that, that just vanishes fear. It is his peace that guards our heart against anxiety. 
It is his peace this morning that grants us the ability as believers with everything that is different in our lives to come in here and live together as one. This is the peace that he gives us. And he says the world does not have the ability to give that type of peace. Not as the world gives, right? The world can't give peace. The world gives hatred. It gives, it gives envy. It gives selfishness. It promises peace, right? Growing up, every Miss America beauty pageant, you know, that one question, right? What do you wish for? I wish for world peace. Right? Every politician, well, I'll, I'll, you know, listen to political speeches. They might not say, I'll give you peace with our enemy, but they promise a type of peace. Only to realize six months in the office, they can't give it to you. The world can't give this type of peace. Why? Look at verse 30. He says, for the ruler of this world is coming. And the ruler of this world that is coming is Satan. And so while Judas Iscariot, Pilate, Ananias, everybody involved in this are not absolved from what they are about to do, they are willing agents of Satan's plan to kill Jesus. And when you look at the world, hatred, envy, selfishness, they're all characteristic of Satan's power over the world. Jesus made it clear here, back in John 12. He'll say it again in 16 and 11. Satan is the power of the world. First, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about the God of the world. The world we live in has a ruler. The ruler is Satan. Read the paper. Read the headlines. And this is what he brings. And all of that, and specifically for the disciples, Jesus' death, death and burial has the ability to bring trouble in our hearts. And Jesus says, look, peace I give you, not peace that the world promises. He said, I'm not giving that to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because even though those are characteristics of the world, even though that is why Satan is or, or defining characteristics of Satan and his rule, he says, Satan, in verse 30, has no claim on me. Satan has no claim on Jesus. Jesus never sinned, so he has no claim for him on that way. Satan can't look at him and say, hey, you, you know, I've got, I own you because you did this. He can't do any of that. He has no claim on Jesus, no power over Jesus. It, it, there's no charge that the accuser can bring against Jesus. Because if there was, then his death would be justified. But here Jesus is saying, he has no, no power over me, no authority over me. Therefore, when I go to the cross and I defeat sin, it's not going to be victory for Satan. It's going to be his defeat. And in doing that, I'm going to prove once again that I love and obey the Father. And that's what's going to prove the ability for us to be saved so that then we can demonstrate that same love. And so Jesus says, look, the power of the world has no control over me. And that's really important for us because it gives us peace. We can live in, in a world that is troubled with an untroubled heart because we have the peace 
with Jesus, which was given to us through the cross. Jesus goes to the cross, dies on the cross for our sin, and now we are at peace with the Father. And that peace, because we have that peace, the world can, can go crazy, and it is. But we can have peace in our hearts. We have the same peace with the Father that Jesus has with the Father. Because we come to the Father through Jesus. And now that we have that peace, it is eternal. That peace will never vanish. It is why in John 14, 6, he says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to me, but through, the, through me comes to the Father. We can go and we can see the Father. We can live in the heaven with him in our abode that he prepared for all eternity because we're at peace with the Father. And we experience that now because there is no one who can condemn us. Isn't it amazing that Satan is the accuser and Jesus is our advocate? And our advocate, Jesus Christ, is greater than the accuser because he defeated him for all eternity at the cross. So let not your hearts be troubled because we serve a Savior who lives. We can face tomorrow. All fear is gone because it's been replaced with the peace of Jesus that we have through confessing Him as Lord and Savior. And it will be the defining characteristic of our life throughout all eternity as we live at one, as we live in peace with the Father. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.